So we're in a series on relationships right now, but we're going to learn from the Master Himself, Jesus, when it comes to relationships. And so hang on to your pew. It's going to be a great time in the Word right now. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for all that's come before us in our worship so far, to be able to lift our voices to you, to uh, be welcomed to church in a personal way, to uh, be sung to earlier by the choir. And now, Lord, to be able to turn to your word before we go to the communion table. God, this is a, as sure as knitting it together today, today, Lord, is a a great time of worship as we focus on you. And so, God, as we do turn to your word now, I can't believe that there's not one person here today that doesn't desire deeper and more meaningful relationships with those around them. And so I pray, God, that as we focus on the relational activity that we have from a clear understanding of your word, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, and that we would uh, just have a clear uh, direction and vision for the lives of people around us that we love and care about. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me ask you, um, what do you want to be most known for as a follower of Jesus Christ? In other words, as people will someday reflect back on your life, and many people will, what is it that you want them to associate your faith in Jesus with? If you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, some of you might say to me, well, it's, it's how much Bible I knew. I want people to remember how much I knew the Word, and so that they would know the Word. Some of you might say, well, no, it's more the, the kind of church I attended. You see, I came out of this one background, and it wasn't very helpful, and now I attend this kind of church, and I want them to know how important church is. Others of you would say, no, it was my serving and my generosity that I want people to see. Just, just, just the needy causes that we have out there and, and how we need to give and be generous to needy causes. Or maybe it's your value system that you want to be remembered most for as a follower of Jesus. How you stood up for values in a culture gone mad. What do you want to be most known for as a follower of Jesus? Some of you would say, it's what I did in the church. The fact that I ushered or greeted or taught Sunday school or served in a soup kitchen. I mean, others of you would say prayer. My gosh, Jamie, prayer is the most important thing. We need to be prayer warriors. And I want those who come after me to remember how important prayer is, to remember my life as a life of prayer. What do you want to be most remembered for? Is it the word, giving, value, service, prayer? What is it for you? Because you see, folks, in all reality, most of us are never going to lead an organized movement while we're alive. We're never going to write a best-selling book. We're never going to get interviewed on CNN or Fox News. We're never going to get any regional or national attention for our faith. And so think about it. We're going to be most known for certain things within our spheres of influence that we did or didn't do by those that knew us best, that loved us the most, and that we loved the most. And believe it or not, what most of us will be most known for as we rub shoulders with those that we love, this side of heaven, is how we relate to those around us. It's true. When you think about it, we're going to be most known for how we loved others, how we related to them in our personal interactions with them. In other words, people will most associate what we say and what we do not say, the kind of time we invest in them and the disposition of our hearts and our minds toward them when we are with them more than anything else. Mark my words, before the, the, more than the knowledge of Scripture you have or your service or your prayers or your giving or anything, it will be our relational activity that defines what we're most known for. That's how we're hardwired as human beings. That's what people are going to remember about you long after you're gone, how you loved them or didn't love them. 
As we noted in the first week of this series, life is relationships and the rest is just details. And it's really true. Whether you feel like you're a strong relational person or not, the reality is life is about relationships and all the rest is just details. And so we're in a series here on relationships at Scottsdale Bible called The Gift of Relationships. And we are looking at the five key components that the Bible says makes our relationships the most powerful and healthy. And we have seen so far the power of intentionality. Remember that in work week one? What happens when we prioritize our time and focus on those that we love? We looked at that passage in Ephesians. It says, make the most of your time, the most of every opportunity. The fact that we need to have intentionality to make our relationships work. And then last week, Daryl gave us an awesome message on listening. I just loved it. And it was new stuff from him. Did you notice that? Like none of these retreads or anything like that. I mean, brand new stuff from your pastor of 25 years. And it was great. And he even wrapped us up by talking about three things that he needed to do to listen better. And I wrote those down. I'm going to incorporate those in my life as well. And so we come to the third component today, and it's called speaking. Simply speaking into the lives of those around us. And to prime the pump this morning, to get us to see how critical this component of speaking really is when it comes to our relationships, here's what I believe in a nutshell the Bible communicates. And it's kind of our main point. Look up here on the screen. And that is that one of the most powerful and distinguishing characteristics of a Christ follower is how you speak into the life of another person that you're in relationship with. It's true. Let's not overstate it and let's not understate it. One of the most powerful and distinguishing characteristics of a Christ follower that you're going to be most known for is how you speak into the life of another person that you are in personal relationship with. And so you want to be known for something? Be known for how you speak to those that God has put in your sphere of influence. And I'm talking about people like your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, your fellow Bible study or small group members. And indeed, you will be known for something. I love how Faye Angus, a popular inspirational writer and speaker, says it. This is great. Look up here on the screen. She says, the Bible tells us that the most vital and yet the most difficult thing is to, ma- to master is our words. She says, it is not so much what goes in one ear and comes out the other that bothers us. It's what goes in one ear, gets garbled in the process, and then comes out of the mouth. <laughs> and she's right. I mean, what bothers us is not necessarily what we hear, though that might bother us, but where most of us get in trouble is that which we hear, and then we process this, and then it comes out And have you ever had the experience where the words are about this far out and you want to grab them and take them back? We all have. Or even if you don't grab them, you say, I didn't mean it quite that. And you just fumble over what you're saying. No, the reality is all of us have a need to speak into the lives of those around us. Words that are true, words that come from God. And so the question becomes then, how do we speak into another's life in a God-infused way? Have you ever thought about that? And I don't mean just talk at them, because lots of people do that. I mean, you and I live in a world where there's lots of talk. But I like how one author put it lately. He said, a fool may talk, but a wise man speaks. And so the question is, how do we speak to those around us in such a way that there is power from the deepest parts of who we are that touches the deeper parts of who they are? 
And so in our time remaining, before we go to the communion table this morning, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts straight from the Bible that I believe tell us how to precise, how precisely God would have us speak into the lives of those around us in such a way that it will truly distinguish us, as they said of Jesus, as ones who have been with God. And to make this so that we can all get our mental and spiritual arms around it, I want to clearly share with you in our time remaining what I believe the Bible calls us to speak from in speaking into other people's lives. And then I'm going to share with you what I believe the Bible calls us to speak to into other people's lives. So real simple outline this morning. What we speak from, you'll see what I mean in a minute, and then we're going to take a look at what we speak to in other people's lives. And so here is what God desires all of us who have come to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, to speak from. Look up here on the screen. And that is that we speak from a new heart. We speak from a new heart. Now, as soon as I say new heart, some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about, Jamie? And and I want to explain this to you. Because I know that since I've been here for the last two years, I've thrown out to you every once in a while this phrase, a new heart, and that we function from a new heart. But I've never really explained clearly what I mean by this and what I believe the Bible means by this. And yet it is so important that we understand this because, get this, this forms the absolute foundation and basis from which God calls us to speak into another person's life. And so let me back up a little bit. Most of us know that the Bible makes it pretty clear that each of us are born in a state of separation from God. Have you learned that yet? Give me a head nod if you know that. The Bible says that every human being on planet Earth is not born with some type of blank slate, and we're not born coming out of the womb saying, where's God? I can't wait to walk with Him. But the reality is, is that all of us are born, as wonderful as babies might be, in a state of separation or fallenness, or what the Bible calls sinfulness. And it makes it clear further then that until we do something about it, we are stuck in what the Bible calls our flesh or our sinful human nature. And by flesh, the Bible simply means our body and soul in separation from God. It's you and I using our own strength, independent of God, to make life work. And so every human being is born with a strike against them, the core of our fallen nature that has this great temptation to not do life with God, but to try to do life using our own strengths, our own internal reserves to make life work. And make no mistake, folks, the flesh is a very powerful thing. I mean, I see non-Christians all the time, people who want nothing to do with God, do lots of things in the power of their own flesh. Think about it. We can get good grades in the flesh. We can secure good jobs. We can find a good spouse. We can raise pretty good kids. We can get promotions in the flesh. We can save for good retirement. We can take nice vacations. We can buy nice cars. We can celebrate nice holidays. I mean, we can do lots of things as a human race simply in the power of our own flesh separated from God. And yet even though we can do all of this, we're still separated from God the one who made us and loves us and wants us to be in intimate, dependent relationship with Him, connection with Him each moment of each day. But as long as we're living in what the Bible calls our flesh, we're not doing that. And so this is why Romans 7 verse 18 says this. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh or human nature. 
It's not that the flesh cannot do any good. It's just that in the end, it cannot do any good of eternal value, of spiritual significance, because it's doing these things totally in one's own strength, apart and separated from God. That's the state that every human being is in that the Bible makes clear. And so all of us are born in this state of the flesh. It's our natural separated from God state in a fallen world. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that it is basically one big object lesson on how we cannot reconnect with God in the power of our own strength. I mean, the law was given so that we might try to reconnect with God after our fallenness. And just by living all the do's and don'ts of the law, the Old Testament shows us that we cannot do this in our own strength. And in the middle of the Old Testament, in a moment of incredible hope, there is a profound prophecy of what someday would come. Check it out. It's in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. I'm going to bet my dollar this morning that you did not have a devotional in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 this week. And yet we're going to look at this right now because this is profound in setting up this idea of what God has done for us in Jesus and this new heart that we now have. Listen to this prophecy. God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Fascinating. And so someday God says that he will replace our heart of flesh with a new heart, a place that he now inhabits and that his power now resides within. And this new heart, it says, will be in you and with you always, a place that God will function in and from in your life to do eternally big things. And sure enough, folks, when Jesus came as the incarnate Son of God some 2,000 years ago, which is why we celebrate Christmas, and called us to believe and trust in Him for eternal life, the Bible says that something very profound happens when a person trusts Christ and that he or she now gets this new heart and this spirit that now lives within. In other words, Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 came true at the time of Jesus and for those who became followers of Jesus called the church, you and I, individually followers of Christ. And so if you don't believe me, look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says. This is going to blow your mind. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what many commentators on the Bible, Bible experts note, is the new here is referring in great part to that new heart that Ezekiel promised, that God promised in the Old Testament. It's a new creation in which God has now placed a new heart within the believer. And to show us how real this is, the Bible further tells us that the Trinity now, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit actually live in this new heart So much so that there is now a part of every Christ follower that is absolutely alive in the Spirit. Even if you don't feel it or don't see it, eclipsed as it can be by sin or ignorance or whatever, it's there. And so look at how Paul encouraged the believers in Rome in Romans chapter 8 verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, if you're a Christian... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. Or as one translation says, the spirit is alive because of his righteousness. And so for every follower of Jesus here today in this room, there is a part of you that is alive because the spirit of God lives in you and he's given you a new heart. 
that every Christ follower now has a spirit living in them, a new heart in them. And though the flesh is still there, this is where it gets tricky, though the flesh is still there, so that there's a battle that wages every day between what the Bible calls the flesh and the spirit, there is still a deeper part, however, of every follower of Jesus in which God now resides and does His work in and through you, chipping away and even using you in the lives of others. Now with that theological setup, folks, here is the simple but profound truth then when it comes to our relationships. And that is that you and I are called to speak to others not from the flesh, though we can do this, and many Christians do it all the time, but to speak from this new heart that is within us, words that are empowered by the Spirit who lives in us, breathes in us, and works in and through us, even causing us to keep in step with Him, as the book of Galatians says, and thus release His power and truth to those around us. And so in a very real way, there are always two choices before every Christian each moment of each day when it comes to speaking into the lives of those around us. We can speak from the natural, fleshly part of us that's still there, what 2 Corinthians chapter 1.12 calls fleshly wisdom, which might masquerade as wonderful, helpful words at times, but has no power to touch the human heart because they're all about the old you, not the new you. Or we can speak from a new heart, words of life and power that come from the part of us that is alive with the Spirit of God. This is the difference between what my friend Larry Crabb calls self-talk versus soul talk. And he says that you have a choice each moment of each day. That you can talk from your natural fleshly self and share wonderful scintillating words of wisdom that come from you or Oprah or the latest bestseller that you've been reading or whatever it is. Or you can engage in soul talk. Allowing that alive part of your heart and mind that is bathed in the Word of God and alive in the Spirit to touch and reach another person who needs a divine touch through you from God. And though this might sound awfully mystical and nebulous to some of us here today, and I get that, and in many ways it is, I would submit to you that all of us have had experiences when people have spoken words into our lives that seem just fine and right at first hearing, but don't really do anything in the deepest recesses of our soul. You ever had that happen? Where somebody's speaking words to you and you go, I know what they're saying is cogent. It just doesn't seem to have much punch. It's just not getting through. And then we've had other other times when people have used even seemingly similar words, but somehow these had power and life to them that, that reached the deeper recesses of our souls and And God did something in us we weren't expecting. What's going on there? I would call that the difference between self-talk and soul talk. Fleshly wisdom versus spirit-empowered truth. People who are speaking from the old them, that flesh, versus the new them, that heart that's indwelt and powered by the spirit. And so if you're tracking with me at all in this, or if you're interested in all of this, folks, the $10 question becomes, well, how do we know which is which, right? Like if you believe at all what Romans 8 and Ezekiel 36 and other passages tell us about this new you in Christ, how do you know when you're functioning from the new you rather than the old you, the new heart rather than the old one? And though the answer is not easy, and I'm learning as I get older that actually the answer is a very personal thing for each of us between us and God to answer. We only know when we're functioning from 
from that alive part of us or from that, that dead, to, dead part of us. Uh, it did hit me a while back that there is one pretty clear external marker that, though not foolproof, can give us a pretty good indication of whether or not we're speaking from the new heart or from the flesh. And the key to understanding this is found in John chapter 1, verse 14. I mentioned earlier that we're going to learn from the Master, from Jesus himself. And John chapter 1, verse 14, in giving an editorial comment about Jesus' coming into this world, actually gives us a neon sign of some markers that you and I can have in our own lives of whether or not we're functioning or speaking from this new alive part of us in Christ. Here's what John 1 verse 14 says. It says, And the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh, which just means a human being, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, now get this, full of grace and truth. Latch on to that last part. Full of grace and and truth. Think about it. Everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said was laced with grace and truth. There was nothing he did or said as one purely functioning from a connection with God and the Spirit that was not exuding a wonderful blend of life-giving grace and life-altering truth. And once you understand this, that in every interaction, Jesus had a perfect blend of grace and truth as he functioned, because he was the perfect son of God, from a connection with the Father, from a a new heart, to use our language here this morning, it seems to me that the markers then of whether or not you and I are relating from a new heart, of whether we're relating like Jesus did in the fullness of the Spirit connected with the Father, are also nothing less than grace and truth. I mean, it only makes sense. Think about what you know of these two things. Most Christians today know that grace is simply unmerited favor. It's giving love and favor when it is most undeserved. Uh, Grace is characterized by forgiveness and acceptance. I know that I'm receiving grace from somebody when they are forgiving me and accepting me despite where my life might be at any one moment. And so grace is shown in Jesus' story of the father waiting for the prodigal son and then receiving him back with a party. It's the story of the Good Samaritan who was way more multicultural than any of us today when he, received, when he bound up the wounds of a Jew who wasn't even like him. And Jesus said that's a story of grace. Grace is the love of God in relational action. It has teeth to it. That's what grace is. It is radical acceptance and love, totally undeserved. That's why the mission state or the vision statement of our church now has become a community of Christ followers who are marked by an unwavering faith and an unconditional love. That's the grace component. And you look closely, folks. Everything Jesus did had grace somehow in it. Whether it was a woman in the well, or the woman caught in adultery, or Zacchaeus climbing up a tree, or the restoration of Peter after he denied him, even in some of his more tougher interactions, like with Nicodemus and John 3, or Pilate during his trial. I mean, there's grace. You can see in all of it. Why? Because Jesus came to us full of grace. And that's part of what our new heart is to be about. And yet at the same time, isn't it fascinating that Jesus also always spoke truth from a spirit-empowered heart? Jesus spoke truth to all that he met. And so again, those examples I gave you spoke truth to Zacchaeus, to the woman at the well, to the woman caught in adultery, to Peter when he restored him, to Pilate when he even said to him, what is truth? I mean, he spoke truth uh, to all people. 
It's fascinating. When you look closely at the Scriptures, there's always two types of truth that Jesus spoke to those around him. Give me two clicks here, guys. First, he spoke transcendent truth, the truth of who God is to people around him. And then he also spoke personal truth, however, the truth of who you are and where you might happen to be in your spiritual life. It says in John 3.21, Jesus says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The reality is, is that Jesus always spoke truth to people on a personal nature, as well as a transcendent nature, but mixed in with grace. And so once you get this, I think it'd be relatively safe to say that when grace and truth are flowing from our heart and through our words in all of their very different forms to another life, then we can have some assurance. I think that we are speaking from a redeemed new part of us that God now inhabits and wants to work in and through us in. And yet the opposite would also be true. Let's think about this, folks. That when we are relating more from a sense of what Philip Yancey calls ungrace, which many Christians tend to do at times, being judgmental, mean, nasty, uh, not very caring and kind to those around them, the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13, it's ungrace. And when we are speaking more truth that comes from this world and not really from His Word rightly understood, then we're speaking more from the flesh not from the new heart. Uh, Truly the markers become grace and truth flowing from a new heart. Uh, Now to best show you this in the positive, I want to wrap up this morning by sharing with you um, just one or two specific things uh, that grace and truth speak into in the lives of those around us. Uh, You notice on your outline that there are three things I was originally going to share with you, but we're going to take some time to look at the first one, maybe even the second one if we have some time, but then we've got to go to the communion table. But you're going to get the picture as we go along. So this is part two of our message. The first part being what we speak from, but now let's talk about, once we understand the new heart, what we speak to into the lives of others. And, and you're going to like this. And so the first thing, notice that we speak to, is simply another's life. And we speak vision and encouragement. We speak to another person's life. And we speak vision and encouragement. And though this might seem rather general to you, don't miss the power here, folks. Because most people today, I would submit to you, including most Christians, don't have people around them who regularly speak words of profound affirmation, vision, and encouragement into their lives. And I mean on a regular basis. I mean, it might happen on birthdays and anniversaries and the odd celebration. I mean, everybody's nice to people on their birthday, right? And you say things that are encouraging. But I'm talking about on a day-in, day-out level. Do you think that the average follower of Jesus has people in their lives that speak profound words of vision, affirmation, and encouragement as to what they can continue to become as they follow Jesus? I've been observing followers of Jesus now for 20 years as a pastor, and I don't see it very often in that way. And yet that's exactly what we're called to do. Now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. This is profound stuff. It says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now focus on that little word, encourage, there. I don't want to bore you with a Greek lesson here. Well, yeah, I do. That's the Greek word, parakaleo. 
And you don't have to remember that, but it's a fascinating Greek word. It's, it's a Greek word that actually is a combination of two other Greek words, para and kaleo. And get this, the word para means to come alongside another person. It's a very intimate word. It means that you actually come alongside another person, sort of put your arm around them and start to walk with them. And then kaleo is where we get the English word call from. And it literally means to speak or call words of truth, vision, and affirmation into somebody else's life. So we translate it into the English, encouragement. Speak words of encouragement. But it's a rich word in the original language to literally come alongside another person and then speak, almost yell, words of affirmation and vision of who they are in Christ into their lives. And all I know is that if you start to have stuff like this with people who really know you on a regular basis, it's powerful and life-changing to be able to speak and receive speaking in this way on a regular basis. If Kim was here this morning, and she's not, she's going to be coming to the evening service, um, and I asked her in an honest moment, what are some of the things that, that Jamie struggles with in his pastoral ministry? She would remind us all that out of 22 different spiritual gifts in the New Testament, that I only have two of them. And that there are two things that God has gifted me to be pretty good at, and that, are leadership, that is leadership and teaching, but that there's 20 other things that I have to really work hard at. Things like hospitality, mercy, encouragement, helps, service, things like that. I just don't naturally do those things very well. I'm a leader and I'm a teacher. And especially this area of encouragement, because my wife is such an encourager, is an area that she encourages me just about every day to try to practice in a stronger way. She knows that I come on campus here and that I lead pretty strongly, that I set a course, I set direction, that we have strategies and vision and we're mobilizing people and we're you know, making sure ministries are functioning well and we're networking and we're pioneering new hills to take and, and that's what leaders do. It's Romans 12.8. If a person's gift is leadership, it says let them lead. And so that's what we do. But in the midst of that, Kim knows that it's easy to run over people, to be insensitive to personal needs, to not really encourage others. And so this is a true story. I'd say probably at least three times a week when I'm leaving the house in the morning, she'll look at me and she'll say, be nice, encourage somebody today as I'm sort of leaving the door. You know, and I get that. I get that. She's just saying, make sure that you, you know, encourage people. And so with that understanding, I had an experience this last Thursday that kind of blew me away, and I don't even think the guy knew how much he blew me away. I mean, this group of men that I meet with, just three other men that I've, I've asked to be around me to um, just... I hate the word accountability groups, but you get the idea, just to, to regularly meet with me and just get super honest with each other and support each other in our Christian faith. So we meet at a, at a restaurant here in town, and uh, we were meeting, and we've been together for about a year now, and one of the guys is, is Paul Wagner. Paul's one of our Sunday school teachers. He teaches professor, he's a, teaches uh, Old Testament, a professor of Old Testament at the seminary. And Paul's a very, very sweet man. I trust him. He's very mature, and I think he can take hearing certain things from his pastor and, uh, and so we've gotten to know each other pretty well. And at the end of our time this Thursday, we were wrapping up, and he kind of surprised me. He reached across the table, the other guy's there, and he grabbed my arm, and he said, I, I just want to say something to you. And now when another guy grabs your arm, you really perk up, right? Because you're like, why are you touching my arm? And so he grabbed my arm, and, and he said this to me, and he looked at me, and, and he blew me away. He said, I just got to tell you, last Sunday when you didn't preach, because Daryl was here, but you did those baptisms. I baptized about 20 people last Sunday. He said, I saw a side of you that I've never seen in the two years that I've known you. And it was very pastoral. It was very encouraging. It was very empathetic. 
And it was a tenderness that I don't think always comes out when you're in leading and teaching mode. And it just really encouraged me about who Christ is making you and forming you to be. My immediate thought was, did Kim call you? I mean, like, what's going on here? I mean, that, that, this just sounds eerily familiar to me, you know. But Kim didn't talk to him. He, he noticed something in me that God was doing in me in that moment. And he was casting a vision. He was affirming, if you will, to keep on keeping on. And then not leaving it there with his hands on my arm, he said, well, let's just close today by, by praying. I just love to pray for you. He just prayed a prayer, basically saying, God, continue to do that in Jamie. May that come out more and more and, and what have you. And I got to tell you, do you, think I, do you think I walked away from that breakfast sort of going like this, you know? And I didn't. I walked away going, wow. I, I just felt like there was a God moment there. I, I'm no idiot. I know through the eyes of the world, some would say, nah, that was just some psychological encouragement you got in the moment, Jamie. But through the eyes of faith, I choose to believe that Paul spoke to me from an alive part of his new heart filled with the Spirit, and I know that he touched a part in me that is alive and made me even more alive as I saw God at work chipping away at my character, but positively, to to mold me into the man that I know he wants me to be. Let me ask you, do, do you have regular times in your life with those that you love the most, whether it be your spouse or your children or your grandchildren or your good friends or your fellow church members, where you feel like you're taking the risk to speak truth and grace into their lives from a part that you know is alive in you, from a part that you know is right. I think of our teenagers. Man, man, teenage years, I mean, they can be the most um, confusing times, but it's also a time when people are coming alive, teenagers are coming alive, as they find their own way. Uh, What a time they need for us to speak into their lives. A guy named Tilden Edwards wrote a book about uh, 15 years ago called Sabbath Time. It was basically his argument to try to get people to see that we need to have regular time of rest, his choice being Sunday because that was the day he wasn't working. So he's arguing to take Sunday as a day of rest. And in this book, he tells about a family with teenage children who decided to take him up on this challenge to have Sabbath time. And one of the rules that they made on their Sabbath is that there would be no criticism of each other for a full day every Sunday. So you could criticize all you want Monday through Saturday, but when Sunday came in this family that was honoring the Sabbath, there would be no words of criticism whatsoever. And they committed to this and they practiced it. Edwards writes in this book that after a few months, with nobody even talking about this commitment, they realized that more of their children's teenage friends were coming over on Sunday just to hang around this family. That the teenagers themselves picked up on this and they knew that this was a good place to be, a place that they wanted to be because of the life that was coming from soul to soul just through the lack of criticism. I would submit to you that's what people are looking for. People are looking for a place of grace and a place of truth when it comes to God working in their lives. And I would submit to you that when we find ourselves speaking words of affirmation and hope to those around us, especially the kind that affirm who one is in Christ as a creation of God and redeemed in Christ from a new heart that flows in us, then look out. Spiritual sparks begin to fly and there's a good chance that you can know that you're speaking from a new heart to a place in them as well. And speaking to to another's life, words of vision and encouragement. 
And let me just make one more comment before we pray and wrap up here and go to the table. And that is that as you speak into another's life, by all means, don't ever forget that you're speaking directly from this book. Amen? That's from this book. Again, we live in a therapeutic culture today that in many ways is not bad, but it's a therapeutic culture in which you will hear words of wisdom all over the place. I mean, I sometimes make fun of Oprah and Dr. Phil and the fact that you can buy over a million books on self-help on Amazon.com, but it's everywhere. My degree is in psychology. I understand that. But the reality is, is that the most powerful thing that you and I can share into another's life are the truths that come from God's will and heart that come from this book. And so think about what Paul did for me last Thursday. Paul spoke not just like pious little words of therapeutic value. He spoke to me profound words of vision and encouragement in what God cares very much about my life, and that's that I'm more of an encourager and pastoral in nature. And he did so with grace and truth behind it. And so what you and I are sharing in another person's life is gritty, wonderful, grace-filled truth. And all I can tell you is if you speak that into another's life from a new heart, from a place in you that you know is pure and that means well, and you speak that into another person's life, look out. God is in that. All right. We're going to go to the table right now. And the uh, servers are going to come forward. And as I do, why don't we pray? And then I'll give us instructions on how we can get the most out of our communion time. Father, thank you that... uh, you have given us your word as I pray every Sunday. I can't even imagine what I would talk about here if you hadn't revealed yourself in 66 books of the Bible that we talk about all the time here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And Father, I uh, thank you that uh, you also care enough about our relational activity. In fact, it's core to your kingdom that you've given us some key components on how we can relate to those around us in a very healthy way. And so Lord, we've explored a little bit about intentionality. Daryl talked to us about listening. Today we've just scratched the surface on speaking, but here's my humble prayer, and that is, Lord, that for those folks here today that, that really want to speak profoundly to those around them, that, Lord, they would have the courage to take an internal look and ask themselves if they are speaking grace and truth from a new heart into the life of another person, words of vision and affirmation and encouragement. Lord, I can imagine what people's lives would be like if every Christ follower dared to speak that way into the lives of those around them. This city, this town, this world would never be the same. And so, Lord, even this Christmas season, as many of us are in the rubric of very difficult relationships, God, help us to speak as Jesus would speak. Truth mixed in with grace. And we pray these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.